I think that if we think about treating everybody the same, we assume that everybody has the same starting point or the same support, and that's not the case. So there is much more to do. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of 80% Mental, a podcast all about the psychology of sport performance. We've covered quite a lot of ground. If Series 1 was an introduction to the mental side of sports performance, I think Series 2 has definitely gone beneath the surface a little bit more. Uh, We've had some absolutely fantastic discussions on topics like critical thinking, on injury, on sport parenting, creating team culture. And I don't know about you, but I've learned loads. Well, we usually start with a question, uh, but to be brutally honest, I couldn't actually think of a good question for this one. So it's more of a statement that we're going to discuss. And that statement is diversity and cultural awareness in sport. It's not really a statement either, really. It's just a a sort of title, but that's what we're going to discuss today. And the caliber of guests that we've had so far on this series has been absolutely first class. And we are going to keep that bar high today with two brilliant guests uh, uh, who are going to try and help us to navigate this topic of diversity and cultural awareness. So I'm delighted to introduce our two guests for today. First up, we have Shamima Youssef. Shams is a transnational intersectional feminist. Shams is a trans... (laughs) You wrote it. I know it's a math. (laughs) Shams is a transnational intersectional feminist sports psychologist. Try saying that three times really fast. An ASP certified (laughs) mental performance consultant and a registered mental health counsellor. She has a private practice empowered to perform and works internationally in culturally diverse environments of Olympic sport, youth performance, and the corporate industry as well. And more than that, I am really proud to have Shams as a a good friend who has supported me a lot in the last couple of years. So Shams, welcome to 80% Mental. Really nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Our second guest is Alessandro Quartiroli. How did I do? Fantastic. Wonderful. Uh, Originally from Italy, Ale moved to the USA via Spain in 2005. He's an associate professor of psychology at the University of Wisconsin, La Crosse. And Ale is also an ASP certified mental performance consultant. Ale's main areas of interest focus on professional issues, ethics, training, and practice. And again, I'm delighted to have Ale uh, on the podcast today. So Ale, welcome to 80% Mental. Thank you. It's my privilege and honor to be here with you all. Well, I mean, I don't think we could have asked for two better guests to talk about the topic that we are talking about today, which is uh, diversity and cultural awareness in sport. Um, It's a really important topic, but often when words like diversity, inclusion, cultural awareness are mentioned, we're often met with responses like, Okay, well, I just treat everybody the same. I don't see difference. Now, on the surface of it, that might seem like a perfectly reasonable position to take. But, you know, I I certainly have issues with that position. What do you feel are some of the problems with that approach? Well, I I feel that um, with that kind of uh, response, it it suggests that you don't see the difference. Um, 
and you fail, fail to see the qualities and the richness of one's culture and identity and and thereby don't really appreciate some of the wonderful lessons that can be gained from people who do have different experiences. I think there's also an element of that you don't see the injustice that has perhaps um, surrounded me as someone who is of a marginalized identity. And so you sort of default to maybe the status quo, which is, well, I'm not doing any harm, but then what are you doing to actively dismantle some of those barriers that I face or and others like me face? Yeah, uh, I, I, I agree with what Shamema mentioned. Um, I think that getting behind the idea I treat everybody the same is there is a whole lot of assumption. And the first assumption is everybody is the same, which is now we are all different. And, uh, and, and as Shamema says, by assuming that we can treat everybody the same, we also forget to celebrate what makes us unique and how we can celebrate each other's uniqueness uh, and learn it from it. Now, the two things I'd like to add. One is that it's partially my personal experience, but experience also of some of the people I work with, which is um, in one specific context, uh, we might be in the position to say, I can't treat everybody the same when I'm in a position of privilege. In another context, that privilege might be taken away. And now, how do I feel about this statement? I think that oftentimes we forget to put ourselves in that position. I was actually listening to Joe Amiachi's um, description of, of white privilege recently for an mm-hmm. end time on, 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 on Twitter. And I, I think it's great because he made two distinctions. One is that he, uh, it's not being a bad person. The other is we all have some privilege. And I think that um, that is an important reminder in terms of talking about treating everybody the same. And last point that I think about it that is the difference between equality and equity. I think that if we, if we think about treating everybody the same, we assume that everybody has the same starting point or the same support or the same possibility or the same history and story and journey, and that's not the case. And so there is much more to do. Hmm. So on the surface of it, this idea of being uh, blind, I guess, to differences like I said, it seems like almost a noble position to take in some respects. Well, I don't see the differences in people. I treat everybody the same. But actually, by doing that, you're saying we're missing out on not only the differences that we should be celebrating uh, that, that, that we see in other people, but also we're missing some of the disadvantages uh, that they might experience as well because of those of those, uh, of those differences. So, yeah, I think... Again, you know, coming back to my original point, whereas it seems like a really noble position to take, there are deep, deep flaws with it. And I think acknowledging that is probably the first step towards um, what we are what we are really talking about today, which is sort of understanding diversity and, and having a bit more cultural awareness in a field of sport where we, you know, where we work. When you see someone the same, you're not mindful of your language either in that case. So, you know, I, I recall being in a workshop um, some years ago and sitting at the back of the workshop and 
the presenter sort of said, right, let's let's get moving, everyone, stand up. And of course, at the back of the room, there were two two students there in, in wheelchairs. And, you know, really not, if you treat everyone the same, you're not mindful of the language that you're using. So you're using very generalistic language. Um, and, and so that can be problematic. And so what, in effect, what ended up happening is excluding those two individuals at the back of the room. Um, so that that's where I think, you know, these these differences do become important because we need to think about how, how are we talking about things, what is our narrative, um, uh, and what is the context that we're in. When we talk about diversity and equity and inclusion, um, there is this idea of the saviors, right? There's a group of people that is doing that for others to make uh, their journey, whatever, easier, harder, whatever that might be. Uh, and I think that at times this perspective is extremely limiting, whether I think that we could flip it and think about how can I change my own life to reach this level of equity. And because uh, until I, you know, I'm a white guy, middle class, highly educated, heterosexual, in an English-speaking context, until I talk, you know, I'm as majority as it gets. Um, mm. And until I think about how I can make somebody else's life better, I still keep my privilege. Uh, and I wonder instead uh, if the question could be asked, how, how can I work on myself to make that change and uh, to create more equity? And then the process of supporting the process uh, and using my privilege to change the system is important. And uh, and I also think that that cannot be the only direction of the work that we do. I'm, I hope that it was clear what I was trying to say. Yeah, no, I, absolutely, yeah. And it, it comes back to what you mentioned earlier as well, the video that John Amici made about, uh, about white privilege, but also about just privilege in general. And if you haven't seen that yet, uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen that video, I urge you to go and watch it. And we will put a link to it in the description because it is a fantastic explainer of privilege. And I, I think, Ali, you sort of alluded to this a little bit in your previous answer, but you know, when we talk about cultural competence, what do we mean by that? And I, I don't know if either of you want to want to go first with this one, but you know, what is cultural competence? On one aspect, is I feel that there is always this idea of competence as these things that we get it and we reach, and when we're done, that we're good. Competence in general, I don't believe that's the case. Culture competence even less. Academically, you know, competence have been described as uh, knowledge, awareness, and skills. Um, I was thinking of a project that I recently carried on and talking to people who define their work as culturally competent and culturally grounded. And some of the things that were brought up that made me reflect was one aspect is, uh, is cultural competence is an ethical obligation, something that is not should we do it, maybe do it. It's something that is so has to be so much part of what we do and integrating what we do. I think that generally speaking, cultural competence has this idea of uh, trying to understand how the peculiarities that the other person carry on in in, a, in our working relationship and our relationships in general, 
and their background and their uniqueness, uh, as long as with mine, can be part of what we do throughout the relationship we develop. And, uh, and, so, and I think that part of that can be developed formally with formal training. And not necessarily just with formal training. I think that we miss opportunities to to develop those competence, if you want to call them that way, mm-hmm. that has to do with the relationship that we all have, exactly for what we discussed earlier about how we all have a set of uniqueness. And I think that that's a work that we cannot expect to be able to do um, in our job exclusively, only when we are on the job. Is a work that we have to continue to do it. Yeah, I, I think you you've spoken to this idea that we we don't become reductionist. Um, so just because we see individuals belong, you know, uh, from the outset, we may think of them as belonging to a certain group. It's important that we have some universal idea of the cultural belonging and, and some knowledge that will help us, uh, some knowledge and skills that will help us with understanding that cultural group, but that's from a universal perspective. But then we also really need to get, um, understand their uniqueness, and this is what, what Ali is, is speaking uh, to. We, we then have to embed that knowledge um, into the techniques and the strategies that we as practitioners implement with our clients we have to understand how how those issues of diversity can impact the the interpersonal relationship with the client. So so also recognizing that um, how are we turning up to that that experience with the client? What are we carrying? So if we are coming in with with privilege, are we aware of that privilege? But at the same time. You know, I could be a person who has been marginalized in, in numerous ways. And how am I turning up to that relationship, having been marginalized by a group that, that perhaps my client is now in front of me representing, you know, and so that can impact the relationship that we have. So um, it's being aware of that, it's being willing to self-reflect, so that cultural self-reflection is is so important that you know how do we identify what what aspects of our identity are so are important to us Mm -hmm. so that those just some 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 thoughts that come to my mind and in in terms of how we go about um developing that ongoing competence Mm -hmm. again as, as ali says it's an ongoing process yeah so that ongoing nature of it that critical self-reflection the understanding of uh, one's own position position of privilege and where that situates you in the relationships that you have with coaches, with athletes, between coaches and athletes. And I think what's really interesting is, and, and we haven't really mentioned this, but I'm going to, is that when we talk about cultural competence and understanding, because Shams, you just mentioned kind of understanding your own uh, culture and your own sort of position, we don't really talk about whiteness in that respect we kind of assume that we're talking about otherness when we talk about cultural competence, but actually, you know, exploring where somebody might sit uh, as a white person, even in a predominantly Western white country, is also an important position to examine in terms of, uh, you know, 
how you might interact and how you might come across and how you might work with the people that you that, that, that you work with absolutely i think it's it's examining that whiteness of course i i'm i'm i don't identify as a white person <laughs> um, and uh sorry oh gosh so for me it's more about what what privileges um do i have that i'm showing up with you know and and mm-hmm. actually i i fell short on this one uh in my practice i i felt short on this one whereby i i um you know i was working with with an athlete and um not recognizing that you know i i guess you would define me as educated you know i'm i've, I've been well educated and my language the use was was not relating to 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 the athlete you know the athlete turned around and said to me can you use you know words that i can understand please mm-hmm. you know so again it's really reflecting on that privilege that we we show up with um and, and so whilst you talk about whiteness i'm talking about now socioeconomic status mm-hmm. uh, that has enabled me to gain an education that perhaps my athlete hasn't had and so how am i um presenting and interacting with that athlete in a way that um is one culturally aware but but relates to the athlete so i I think what i'm what i'm picking up from this is privilege isn't something that we should be afraid of or shy away from or get defensive about because there are numerous layers of privilege you know you've talked about uh, well, we've talked about color, we've talked about socioeconomic status, we've talked about education, and we are all privileged in some way or another. Um, and again, what I'm hearing is this idea of acceptance of that is the first step to becoming a little bit more competent in this area. Um, okay, so so we've talked about this idea of cultural competence, all right, and we've talked about this idea of awareness being a really important step and not being defensive when we talk about things like privilege. Um, okay, so I, I, I'm a young coach, right, or a young psych, or, or even a really old one. Um, I'm fully on board. I can see the gaps in my training. I can see the need for some development. Like, where do I start? Like, what can I do? as a psychologist or uh, a coach, like I say, to, to become more culturally competent, to become more aware? Well, like, what, what can I actually do? Self-reflect. I mean, we've spoken just a little bit about this already, is that, you know, start with yourself, start with, um, you know, how do you identify and what are the power and privileges that come through your cultural identity you have? And recognizing that though we, we, we can go through all this um, cultural self-reflection, we also want to practice that um, cultural humility because whilst we're aware of the power and the privileges that we have and then, you know, and we, we start to learn about other cultures, we're not the expert on everyone else's culture. Hmm. So, so as a practitioner, I mean, for me, I mean, I when I show up to to a session, um, I may very well s- start with recognizing some of the difference there between me and my athlete or or the person in front of me, and mm-hmm. uh, really try to explore what's important to them 
because they are the experts. I'm not the expert. They are the ones. They are the, the expert of how they identify in their culture. So it's about learning from others in a way that's not, you know, so you know, uh, offensive mm-hmm. by sort of, you know, questioning or, or where are you from as, as if to point out that you don't belong, but in a way that really is um, interested in the person that, that is sitting in front of you. It's a it's a really interesting one that you know you talked about asking not in a way to uh, to highlight that the person doesn't belong and it's just you know where are you from? Well, I'm from Gateshead. Okay, well, where are you really from? Yeah, exactly. Okay, no, just because I'm black, I'm still from Gateshead, right? So yeah, exactly. I know you're expecting me to say like some sort of exotic you know African location, but actually I'm from Gateshead. But even just asking that simple question in a way that is you know you see it as a harmless question that you're generally interested in somebody's background, but actually what you're doing is you're highlighting that they don't necessarily belong in the same way that you do. So I just thought it was a really interesting uh, example that you mentioned there. Uh, Ale, your your background, we, we, we talked earlier, your kind of area of expertise is in training, uh, training and ethics. And, you know, I wonder from your perspective in terms of, you know, young psychologists, even young, again, young coaches, uh, young athletes, even, you know, what can they do? What what steps can they take to to develop this awareness or to to become more more competent, if we want to use that word? Being deliberate and making our own personal choice mm-hmm. and wanted to be culturally competent. Um, and not just because it's a course or it's a competence that, that I have to uh, do it because the requirements or whatever accreditation doing it. I also believe that there is some aspect of self-exploration. And I would encourage, you know, I identify as a white person. The average white person assumes that everybody else has a race or a culture but themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's not the case. And so when we get in our relationship, the average white person is always about, tell me about your whatever. And my question is, uh, have you asked yourself the same question? Mm. And mm-hmm. so I think that this is a very important aspect of becoming cultural competent. It, it, I guess it was I was trying to mention earlier, this idea is always about the other. And I think that you get to a point where this is about yourself as well. Um, you know, I'm in, uh, with my partner, uh, we have been together for over 10 years and we come from very ethnical, racial, cultural backgrounds. And, uh, and it's always very interesting. And we live in a third cultural <laughs> background. And it's very interesting, the negotiation behind it. And oftentimes, I, I always ask myself, okay, how does this play a role in that relation? And generally, you see only when you talk outside. You know, I'm Italian, so people say, oh, Italian, that's great. And then, <laughs> but they cannot understand me. My partner is from Iran, mm-hmm. and so they completely dismiss Iran. But my partner mm-hmm. is English, it's like a native level, and you can probably figure out um, as far as you can possibly imagine to be a native English speaker. And so, and it's always an interesting dynamic to see. So, having that self exploration. Is, I think that this is the background for the self-reflection itself. Uh, I also think to ask two other pieces, uh, there, there is a little bit of movement right now in the field and provide some training. Uh, you know, ASP is doing, BASIS is doing, uh, ISSP is providing. So these are a great aspect. Programs are creating 
courses about cultural competence. One mm. piece that I, I personally feel and think that is missing is that we continue to see culture as this external piece that uh, when we learn, we learn. It's like a new technique, right? You have it, but you choose to use it or not, depending. And I think that until we don't make the shift of making culture as a, a, a center part of everything we study, we develop, we train, and we apply, um, we, we are not even close to get there because uh, culture is who we are and all identities are who we are. And so this exploration of myself, exploration of the client, exploration of how this identity fit and uh, how this goes beyond anything we do and therefore it has to be integrated in everything we do. Um, I think that is part that we still have to work. So as a young coach, I would say two things, a young psychologist, two things. One is do this uh, personal journey to engage it, uh, and the other is get some uh, training. Uh, but most importantly, is to not leave that as a checkbox in a list. Mm-hmm. Often cultural perspectives is, is siloed. Cultural diversity is siloed in, in organizations, in training. It's always a, a piece on its own. And and when we're studying about sports psychology in training programs, we're always learning through a Western lens. Um, and never, ever do we discuss how that sits culturally and through, you know, and I was having a, a conversation actually with a colleague of mine, um, a Chinese Hong Kong uh, based uh, colleague this week, funny enough, and to gain her perspective. And she said, you know, I guess it would have been great because she was in my class at, at, at university. And she said, I guess it would have been great if we could have uh, been able to discuss from different cultural perspectives what some of those theories, how some of those theories would be integrated within their cultural uh, domain, if you like, you know, in, in, in their their context. Because, of course, with, with Chinese culture, it's, it's a more of a collective culture. And often I, I would sit with her in class and sort of say, you know, you don't say very much. You don't, you don't speak up very much. Uh, and, um, you know, that would be later on when you, she and I would have a natter and she sort of said to me, well, to speak up uh, and question, you know, the, the professor is to show disrespect, right, mm. in, in their culture. And, and it reminds me of the African culture too. You know, I, I come from a part of Africa which is influenced by the Zulu culture. And uh, everyone is, more and more people have heard of Ubuntu. Or if you're Zimbabwean, you, you would say Hunu. Um, which is 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 related, um, and um, you know, w- with the with the African culture, you come into being, you come, you're seen through another human being. So in in a lot of cases, it's your elders that bring you into being, mm-hmm. right? That that respect that respect piece, and, and so what I'm trying to say is that when we're learning sports psychology and we're learning about the self and we're learning about challenge and, and uh, uh, speaking up and questioning, you know, if you're a coach or, or you're a practitioner and you've got athletes in that environment um, and you're challenging them to speak up, 
we're not learning about this in our sports psychology classes. Well, what about if you've got different cultures, how mm. you're working with them uh, to, to, to really recognize that they may not speak up because of their cultural belonging? I mean, I, I saw one of your tweets the other week, Shams, about looking back at theories in sports psychology and sort of re, almost relearning theories. And you were saying that a lot of them are derived through Western lenses um, or are kind of based on Western ideals. Uh, motivation is one that springs to mind for me. You know, we all learn about self-determination theory, extrinsic, intrinsic motivation, how they relate to form, performance. And we kind of just accept that and think, okay, well, that's how motivation works. But as you say, we're kind of missing something there, aren't we? I, I think we we are. I mean, I've I've actually written about this or spoken to this, and and I think a chapter I wrote with Angel Brutus actually was was you know we have a lot of international students, athletes who come across from different parts of the world, Eastern cultures, African cultures. Uh, and a lot of them go over to the U.S., to the U.K., and engage in sport in, in those systems. And a lot of the time, they're, they're not motivated by self, right? They're motivated by the, the whole community at home um, is, is, is with them on that journey, not necessarily physically, mm-hmm. but in, in spirit, in unity, in community. And so often they're motivated by that collective identity is that I'm doing this for my whole community and also motivated by the opportunities. You know, they don't have necessarily the same sort of access to those sort of facilities that they may, you know, that they don't have in in their home um, countries, perhaps. And so, of course, they go to systems like the American systems or British systems that may provide them with a lot of those facilities, but I think we need to examine that a little bit more when not just think about it in terms of self-determination theory or, you know, Mm. uh, intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So Ale, in my, my quest then as a young coach or a young psych to be more aware of, you know, delivering culturally informed sports psychology or, or coaching. What are some of the things that I might be wary of here? So I can be really enthusiastic. Yeah, I'm going to do. I'm going to take on board this challenge. I'm going to. I'm going to learn. I'm going to become more aware. What are the pitfalls or potential pitfalls? I, I'm thinking. Sorry, for a quiet <laughs> time. <laughs> uh, I, I guess that one one of the things I will feel comfortable in saying, listening more than talking. And so that can be a, a pitfall and a, and a strategy, right? Mm. In the sense that sometimes we get so fixated in what we think is the right way to work that we just start to work versus having done all the work that we have just described right now. Mm. And so I think that that is a, an important piece. Um, I, I think that being intentional in, uh, in expect or talking about pitfall, expecting that aspects like culture or identities, they just come up. Um, it, it may or may not be the correct assumption, right? And so I think that being more intentional and helping people to, uh, to create that space where uh, recognizing who we are in this space together is important. So uh, it, and as I mentioned already, I identify as a white person. If uh, a a, a person who identifies as a black individual come in my office pretending that that is not there and just 
working, I think we tell this person that I value for half of who you are uh, or I value myself for half of who I am mm. instead acknowledging and say, hey, okay, let's talk a little bit about this relationship. Uh, we talked earlier about white privilege. And the one thing I found helpful to me is acknowledging, immediately acknowledge when I work with people. And uh, that goes from client to students. Mm-hmm. I acknowledge that I have privilege. I acknowledge that I'm in a position of power in some situation and make that acknowledgement says, you know, I cannot avoid it. I'll do my best to work through it with you. I think that sometimes this acknowledgement helps to create a space where um, the relationship can be a little bit more effective. A pitfall that can happen in terms of cultural awareness is always being in a position of expertise when a client comes in and not accepting that they might have something to teach us mm. and that we can use that piece of learning to better serve them. And, and you know, even when we finish serve, maybe we walk away from that relationship having learned something about ourselves. And so go back to the first thing I said, always been this idea where I'm always the person that can help others and never allow myself to work on myself. That can be the biggest pitfall. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I mean I'm, I might have mentioned it earlier anyway, I think Ali's absolutely spot on, is that um, recognizing that uh, our athletes, our clients are, are the experts on themselves, right? We're there to guide the process. Um, but at the same time, I mean, Ali was coming from it as uh, a, a white person in the room, as the, the practitioner in the room, even as the person uh, of um, intersectional, I mean, we haven't even spoken about that much, right? The intersectional uh, identity that I come with into the room, the experiences of being marginalized in, in, in various ways through that identity, being really aware of how I show up so that it, you know, if a, if a, if a white client is sitting in front of me, that I'm not impacting that relationship in a way just because now I'm making assumptions uh, or, or based on that, that white privilege, mm-hmm. you know, and thinking, well, you've got white privilege, so, you know, let me tell you what I've experienced. It's not about me. Um, And and really being aware of that identity when I come into the room and and the the power that I I have um, in that that sort of relationship, because often your athlete will come into the room and, and think that you are the expert but really recognizing that they're the ones, they're the experts of their own sort of identity mm. uh, in that relationship. And I'm here to help them through their process. I think it's really interesting because as a, as a trainee, you're, you're always told and we're always taught and we always practice, um, you know, not falling into that expert trap, uh, making sure that I'm not the expert in the room. The athlete knows the most about themselves and about their sport and about their own mind. But we never really touched upon that from this perspective. We never really touched on this idea of identity or culture or, or, or experience. I was just thinking, I, I, I think that based on what this conversation we're having, one of the biggest pitfalls that I can think of now is the fear of making a mistake. 
and uh, and the fear to be quote unquote a bad person for having made that mistake. And I think that obviously we want to be mindful on how we interact with others, right? Um, but I also believe that the serenity of fully being and wholly being in that relationship during that moment and accepting that we have knowledge gaps. And the other person is not there to teach us because that's our own work to do. Uh, and at the same time, accepting that, that that piece of the work may not have been done yet. And so that you're working. Uh, and so sometimes I think that the inability to engage with somebody else's identities uh, or uh, cultures or race uh, or sexual uh, orientation or gender identification oftentimes is dictated by the fear to say or do the wrong thing, which obviously we have to continue to educate ourselves. And I also think that sometimes serenely normalize the interaction can have a much bigger and positive impact. That now, and the other part is uh, um, there are some aspects that we may not just be aware of, um, and even if we reflect upon it, because things may not come out right. So I have an accent, and I cannot take it out. And uh, one thing I notice oftentimes that people think that I think with an accent as well, but I just talk with an accent. <laughs> And uh, and and so that's just, that that's just blown issues. my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. Shams, you had you, no. You to I, I just I just want to agree and 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 totally wholeheartedly sort of say you know saying that your client is is the expert doesn't mean that we don't have to do the work. Uh, I just want to make that point because I know I've spoken mm. a lot about you know. Uh, the client, the athlete, is the expert on on how they identify, and and but at the same time, we do need to do the work um, before we uh, go in, in into that relationship or into that interaction. So we are here with Shamima Yusuf and Alessandro Quartiroli. And we're talking about all things related to diversity and cultural awareness in sport, which is a really important topic. And we've had some absolutely fantastic insights from our guests uh, so far. So one of the arguments that crops up quite often is this idea of perceived discrimination. And I've had this before when you get asked, how do you know you've been discriminated against? How do you know it was racism? or sexism, or homophobia, or whatever it might be, whatever form of discrimination, that quizzing of the person, how do you know it was this? And I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that, you know, this idea of perceived discrimination, where people might question whether what you've experienced really is what you've experienced, because they maybe see what's happened in a very different way. So from my perspective, my job is is not to make judgment on the situation, but it is to understand and explore the experience of the individual, the client, the athlete, um, and to really understand and validate their experience. Um, and, and, you know, secondly, second thing that comes to my mind is that from whose perspective is it not discri discriminatory? 
you know that there's there's that to consider too but really my job as the psychologist and the pra- practitioner is to really understand and validate the experience so that's first and foremost that that comes to my mind Ale, what, what i know i have some thoughts on this what what, what do you think I, I agree with shams my question would be regardless what led to that experience something developed that experience and so my first thought is trying to understand what the origins of that experience is because there is a story of the individual that felt something to be discriminatory i wonder how it's been felt that's that's the key question right what led to what Mm -hmm. um and i think that as a practitioner from both perspective, how the person felt discriminated, a person that may have discriminated, uh, I would stay away from the judgment of value or the value of judgment, you know, trying to understand what led the person to feeling that way and how that feeling felt. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's, that's the key two pieces. Yeah. I, I, I think I, I reflect on times when I've had to explain why i feel that something is racist or i justify why i feel the way that i do uh, about something times when i've had to you know expose my own lived experiences to people who've perhaps already decided that actually you know what you're experiencing isn't racism um they've kind of already made that decision they don't see the same thing that i see and that can be exhausting having to do that over and over again and I think there are there are times, you know, having had that experience over and over again of having to justify and having to explain with people who are saying, well, there's no discrimination there. Like, I don't see it. It becomes exhausting. And what happens is that you you end up just not bothering. I, I've learned to pick my battles, which is a horrible thing to have to say because, you know, I should be, you know, we should be fighting this at every stage. We should be sort of highlighting discrimination. But as a, as a person of color, I've learned that actually it's important to pick your battles. And, you know, that's how, that's how racism and discrimination fuels itself because we don't say anything, because we stay silent, because we know so many times that other people will be going, well, there's no discrimination there. Um, yeah, I, I think you both wanted to come in on that. Just very quickly. Um, and I'm glad you brought up this example because I don't know how, how, how is the experience, your experience, Peter. Mm-hmm. Something that I've noticed in moments of fatigue, because as I mentioned earlier, people sometimes assume that a thing with an accent, uh, mm-hmm. it became very blurred in, in conversation if a certain aspect that I don't perceive fair uh, is because of my accent. And so the question constantly is in my head because of what I experienced. Mm. And it sounded that was part of what you were sharing, the idea of uh, there has been so much that the way I feel this, it may be because of what is or may be because of another. But that's my feeling. And so why we are spending time to discuss uh, about my feeling and uh, if it's true or not, because it's my feeling. Mm. Really, what I heard from from your um, example, Peter, is that you feel silenced at times. At the end of the day, what it's what it is, it's it's silencing someone because they don't feel they can speak up about certain experiences because you know they're just going to be questioned uh, in a way that sort of says your experience, your feeling isn't isn't real, isn't isn't you know they're not validating mm-hmm. 
what you've just experienced. I think also what what we're in danger of doing a lot of the time is that, well, that's not racism. Well, may not be racism, but actually discrimination isn't just racism or it isn't just, um, you know, it could be that because of my intersectional identity or your intersectional identity, you're being marginalized by some power dynamic. It may not necessarily be about your race. It may be uh, about you know uh, the intersectional identity in the way it, and in, within the context that you are in. So that that's the other important part: the nuances of your identity in the context that you you're in. Yeah. So I had someone that said to me the other day, "Well, uh, well, how do you know that was racism, not sexism?" And, and I said, "Well, okay, even if it if it's it was sexism, it's still being marginalized by some descriptive of my identity." Mm. And so that's why the for me, it, it, as Ali says, it's really about exploring those feelings and those experiences, uh, and and that will that will give you a story, an understanding. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that you know the the danger of not doing that is that it leads to self gaslighting. Somebody questions whether the discrimination is there or not. You kind of internalize that, and it's like, well, maybe I am imagining it. Maybe it is me. Maybe you know, maybe this this kind of discrimination like isn't as as big a deal as I thought it was, or maybe it's not kind of the case. Um, and okay. and again, that's just well, like you described it, Shams. It, Shams, it's it's being silenced, isn't it? But it's almost silencing yourself because you know that well. There's not much point in making a a, a, a fuss about it. So I think that's a real uh, important point that you both have highlighted there. And sorry, just a quick add. We also have to not. Uh, to not miss the idea that this constant mm. level of microaggression and macroaggression have some serious health consequences mm. and because it has a real impact on the life of a person as well as on the health of a person. Mm. And so I think that for our own comfort, we minimize a lot of this impact because that makes the person that may have made a mistake feeling better about themselves. You know what's so interesting is um, you may not have seen it, Ali, because you're you're out in the states. But uh, I wonder, maybe Pete, you might have seen it. The the documentary with um, Anton uh, Ferdinand, and what immediately um, there was a scene there that actually brought me to tears because Anton was clearly emotional. The effects of discrimination uh, are not just around one event, and the the impact can be long lasting. And each time you faced are faced with a, a, a microaggression, no, no matter how trivial it might seem to some people, it builds mm-hmm. upon each other. You know, it keeps building upon every time you meet with one microaggression is building upon one another and, and another and another and another. And that ongoing um, buildup is what what really impacts one's mental health. When faced with another one, that could be really the trigger that reminds you of all the trauma that you've experienced throughout a lifetime. And, and so that was what really came to my mind when I was uh, watching that documentary is that, you know, with all the time that has been has passed, he, you know he was he was still hurting, mm. and that and you know and you could see that his mental health 
and well-being have been impacted over this period of time um, where you know even revealing to him that his performance had been impacted you know a lack of concentration that the gaffer sort of said to him you know i could see that yeah. it had impacted your 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 concentration and he turned around and he sort of said oh you know i thought my performance was okay but that revelation really hurt him in that moment um so so really to to be aware of the fact that you know this is not just one event this is mm. often a it's often up. a lifetime a lifetime's worth of of those sorts of experiences yeah. We have a problem with weirdness. Our research is weird. It's Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic in terms of participant samples, in terms of the countries that we conduct research in. And I, I wonder, you know, as practitioners, researchers, what what do you think is the impact of that? And what are some of the steps that we might take to change it? I was recently reading an article that was making this point. The writing limitation is just not enough. You know, we have to, uh, what we do with those limitations, <laughs> which mm. I think is the big part at times. Um, in terms of what can we do, uh, goes back to what we discussed a little bit earlier today, um, being deliberate in trying to overcome these limitations and uh, go and gather participants that are not part of the weird population right mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes it's very hard but i also think that there is a so, some little steps can be done just to create awareness so for example something that i deliberately do uh, when i interview people professional from around the world i use uh, indigenous names of the area where they come from uh, when i use the the pseudonyms mm-hmm. and i purposely do that uh, so to uh, to give a message, right? That there's not only John Smith uh, and uh, Ellie McGill mm. names. Uh, and, and, so, <laughs> and, and do I solve the issue of with the weirdness of sample? No. And sometimes it's very hard to do it. Uh, at the same time, create that awareness. I think that really make the extra step. And the other aspect I think is limited. It goes back to the comment conversation the Shams was having earlier about the theory. Even when the samples are not weird, this, the, the theoretical frameworks we start from mm. are weird. So I think that we have two work to do, two type of work. One is make our sample participation more inclusive, deliberately more inclusive, regardless who we study. And the other end, uh, exploring, exploring all these theoretical frameworks and see if there are other theoretical frameworks that come from a not a weird background. So these are two parallel work that we need to do. Mm-hmm. For what we have right now, again, not dismiss and not assume that it is the research. From a, a different perspective, I think it's really important for us that we, we diversify the intake of students who come from diverse backgrounds. It might also help, you know, we, we may start to see research coming from different frameworks um, and and lenses. I'm also reminded just recently, actually, I was so delighted to come across research 
from Zimbabwean perspective, from you know research out of Zimbabwean universities that is talking uh, about how they have social care and community care in, in an African contextual framework. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so really recognizing that there is research out there in other parts of the world. Are we doing enough to really include include some of that with, with within our own frameworks in, in the Western, you know, in the weird countries? And then um, ensuring that we've got um, some funds and uh, we're opening up funding to for for research in in other um, frameworks and and from other cultural perspectives i think that becomes grants that's what i mean mm. making sure grants are available to those who are from uh who'd like to pursue research from other cultural perspectives that isn't part of the weird uh framework um and that we promote that cultural um research I also think, if I may add, uh, I also think that there is another level of conversation here that, you know, we read the research that is published and what happened with the publication process at times, uh, the parameters with which uh, journals at times evaluate research are parameters of uh, certain westernized, uh, um, quote-unquote, weird-built parameters, right? So. There's research that comes from different frameworks that are not the the mainstream framework. The the process of evaluation of of, of this research has to be done with parameters that may be slightly different than the one that we use to evaluate uh, um, research. So, Pete, you brought up self-determination theory, right? Uh, That's very much used. So assuming that a person, I use the example of Shams, from Zimbabwe, write a study about motivation. First, uh, the, the serenity of being able not to use the self-determination theory and be certain that can be published with another approach that is more Zimbabwe-centered, right? And then the journal, though, cannot evaluate the Zimbabwe-centered approach to motivation uh, from the perspective of mainstream and say, well, you know, self-determination says a different thing, so this is not a good research because of that and therefore avoid the possibility for being published. I think that goes both ways, the production and the evaluation of research. To bring this back to the theme of the podcast, all right, we're talking about sport and performance and the mental side of sport and performance. Sport's often seen as this great leveler, right? Sport is often held up as this example of a perfect meritocracy where talent and hard work will see you rise to the top. And I think that is a fundamentally flawed vision of what sport actually is. Sport is a part of society like any other part of society, and it's filled with inequality and injustice. And, you know, sport's not exempt from that somehow. And I just I just wonder what your thoughts are on that. I can give you my thought on that. Actually, I have a slightly different perspective on it. Um, Peter, I, I think I hear what you're saying. Except I'll give you my example of um, as, as someone who uh, was raised in, in Southern Africa during a time not long after I, I came into the sports scene, um, you know, in terms of my level really um, becoming more elite at a time that wasn't long after independence uh, in a country that it 
had been through the apartheid, you know, segregation mm-hmm. regime. And so sport really means a lot more to me because as, as it, it was dominated by the white population. And so for me, it really meant something to be sort of participating in those environments as someone who who is now being able to break break into it mm-hmm. um and whilst my coach i remember my zimbabwean uh coach i i was playing for zimbabwe under 18s and under 21 squad but I, and i remember my coach at the time um not really wanting to make eye-to-eye contact, um, not really engaging me in conversation, within group conversation, and really leaving me out in many ways. For me, I would always go onto the pitch and say, this is where I show you I'm an equal. And this is where I'm going to show you that I deserve to be right here with everyone else on the pitch. And in that way, for me personally, it was a great leveler. Yeah, no, I, I would totally agree with that. I think that once you get on the pitch, absolutely talent and hard work will see you shine and see you rise to the top. The difficulty is getting on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you look at some of the inequality that exists in sport, and again, you know, at the risk of people accusing me of talking about race all the time i'll talk about race here you know we have a situation in the uh, premier league for example where a third of the players are non-white and you have one out of 20 premier league coaches who is a coach of color you know you have 80 percent of the nba being black in terms of the playing uh, staff and you have uh what is it like uh, about 30% of coaches, I think. Inequality is everywhere in sport. But I, I totally agree that once you get on the pitch, you know, talent and hard work, absolutely. But it's the inequality that underpins all of that that I think is, is the point that I was making, really. Uh, Ali, do you have any, any thoughts there? Uh, you anticipate what I had to say. I think that the entry point uh, is meaningful. Not The entry point is not the same for everybody. And the accessibility... And also, as you just highlighted, uh, there is a clearly different role played by athletes versus coaches uh, or managers or yeah. uh, vice presidents, presidents and owners, and and so on. So there is a there is that differentiation. It's not the same. One thing, a couple of things that I was reflecting upon, even even those that have made it, on one end, uh, their identity don't stop. Or just just look at. Uh, how often um, people choose to disclose their identities, whether it's about uh, sexual orientation or gender identification, mm-hmm. after their athletic career. Um, that, that tells us something in, in the climate that mm-hmm. uh, within sport we still experience. Uh, um, and even those that, quote-unquote, fit the big group, uh, um, do everybody get the same... Uh, support the same uh, uh, level of uh, um, facilities and access and and so on. And I also think that there is a different piece that plays a uh, potential big role is the meaning that quote-unquote make it in sport has. And for some people, sport can be just a a personal achievement. For some people, represent uh, to be able to carry their entire community. 
and getting out of a situation that they perceive not being the situation they want to be for themselves or their family. And clearly, reaching performance or not reaching performance success has a very different value. If I am a rich person that doesn't make it uh, playing uh, uh, grass field hockey, uh, it might not be as relevant as a person that perceives receiving a big contract in field hockey has a way to get out from a segregate uh, neighbor in, in the in the interland of a city, right? Mm-hmm. So that in itself creates a, a big discrimination in terms of experience and difference. Yeah, I, 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 I wasn't addressing the the starting point. You're absolutely correct. And my point was that when I'm on the pitch on 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 that court, that's when I can show that. This is where I belong. That that being said, um, the access, and even thinking back to the time, you know, when I was a child um, growing up, and, and it still exists today, is that, as you say, we're all starting from different points, different starting points. And, um, and for me, I always acknowledge and recognize that I was – very fortunate to have come from a, a, a socioeconomic status uh, and I had privilege being at the school that I was at, one of the, you know, the top schools in the region gave me access to facilities that a lot of people, you know, of, of marginalized backgrounds would not have had. I wouldn't have had that access. And because I was within that school environment, I had the access to the facilities. And I, and I you know, do recognize that that comes, that's the privilege that I have. Colleagues, I've been reflecting a little bit about what you've just said on entry points, identity development, um, some great points made, and, and even on privilege. And thinking about whilst I've always believed that once I'm on that pitch or in that environment, it's leveled. And actually, perhaps that's not quite so true. Because in those environments, on that pitch, on that court, we may still be facing microaggressions and face racism. So when I think about Anton Ferdinand, football player who decades later is still trying to process his journey in life and process the racism that he has faced. And he catches up with coach decades later to talk about an incident with John Terry that happened on the pitch. It comes as a surprise to him to hear from the coach that his performance was never quite the same after that incident. In his mind, he had just sort of picked up and carried on. And yet what this speaks to is that racism is trauma. It shapes our experiences for the rest of our lives. And it takes time to process, just as it's been taking time for Anton to process. So for the coaches, the administrators, the practitioners, anyone listening in to this podcast, it's something that we want to be aware of so that 
We recognize how we interact with those individuals and are aware that they may still be trying to process some of these uh, experiences and try to understand that they may approach situations in a slightly different way given what they have experienced and faced throughout their lives. I, uh, I, I, I do have one more question and I, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. 2020 was a pretty incredible year for a whole number of reasons. Um, but I feel like the summer of 2020 woke a lot of people up to uh, racial discrimination in particular. Uh, people who perhaps hadn't seen it before, hadn't heard it before, hadn't understood the depths of it before, or maybe just hadn't quite appreciated it before, maybe. Um, and the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Rashad Brooks in, in America it kind of really woke a lot of people up to the idea of, or, or ideas about racial discrimination and, and, and like I say, the depths of it. Um, I think I think a lot of people of color, uh, myself included, were kind of skeptical because we've seen these sorts of awakenings before, right? You know, 2018 when Stefan Clark was shot and killed by police for holding a mobile phone in his grandma's back garden. And Botham Jean was shot by an off-duty police officer for eating ice cream in his own apartment. People were kind of shocked by that. 2016, Philando Castile was shot and killed by police in his car in front of his girlfriend and his four-year-old daughter. And Alton Sterling was killed by police for selling CDs. You know, 2014, Eric Garner. Before that, Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, Tanisha Anderson. In the UK, Sheku Boyer, Sean Rigg, Mark Duggan. The list is a really long one. And I've made it a deliberately long list. And I've not even mentioned this constant stream of examples of black people and people of color being brutalized and harassed and bullied and threatened that crop up on social media pretty much every day. If we assume that being exposed to this daily trauma, and I use that word very deliberately, doesn't have an impact on coaches, athletes, and colleagues of color, we, you know, we are doing them a massive disservice. But my question is this, this awakening, this awareness that meant people were suddenly desperate to get a hold of a copy of Rennie Edo Lodge's Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, and you know, people posting black squares on their Instagram. How do we turn that into something more sustainable? How do we make sure that coaches and psychologists and athletes who were suddenly really interested in this stuff in the middle of 2020 continue to do the work into 2021 and beyond um i think it it has to be addressed on many different levels actually pete um i think it has to be well we've spoken a little bit about today about practitioners themselves doing the work self-educating really exploring their own worldview and how they show up but I think there's a systemic uh, or, you know, a systems level. There's got to be a, um, some action at a systems level. And so really we need organizations not just to speak about these things or to have their policies written down on pieces of paper, but to really have a strat strategy that takes them from that paper into action. 
And so what are some of the actions that they're taking to implement changes within those organizations? Like, for instance, as you might know, I'm, I'm on the BASES Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Committee. And so, for instance, the, the little things like um, what, what grants are we making available to students of color? Um, or from marginalized backgrounds, how are we supporting their growth in the field? Making travel grants to conferences available. Thinking about as supervisors where we have supervision fees, are our fees, uh, is there a guided process um, or, you know, is there a guide to, to what that range of fees would be so that we are not really excluding those who who may be of low socioeconomic status in that process of getting supervision thinking about um you know accreditation processes and, and becoming a, a basic scientist uh, in psychology well does the training program include training in cultural mm. perspectives um, so that those practitioners are being trained from day one in thinking about some of these things. So it's really about operationalizing a strategy and not just having a policy and then holding each other to account. Hmm. Um, yeah. You know, I'm sorry to say, I mean, you know, people on, on, on Twitter and social media, I mean, amongst our own colleagues, uh, are very defensive when when you bring up some of the the discussion and you you challenge one another. But but this is this is what we have to do. We we have to hold each other to account and deliver on what we're 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 saying that we we are interested in and we we do want to see change. Then then we we've, we've got to follow through on that. I think that's a, a an absolutely wonderful answer, Shams, and and it brings us right back to what we talked about at the very start about this idea of letting go of some of the defensiveness that crops up when we talk about these things, when we mention words like diversity and inclusion and equality and privilege. And the first step, I think, is to like I say just let go of that defensiveness that surrounds that. And that comes from, you know, constantly being challenged and, 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 and we have a responsibility to do that. And there's a level of discomfort. There's going to be a level of discomfort around this. And just in the same way that we would want our athletes to be uh, accepting of that discomfort, we have to do that ourselves as practitioners, as coaches, as trainee psychologists. And we have to embrace that discomfort if we're going to move forward. So I, I think that answer was absolutely wonderful and, and really captured um, a lot of, well, a lot of the conversations that you and I have, uh, you know, outside of, outside of this as well. I think with any of this, um, I think we, we need to recognize that it is complex. Um, there are no instant solutions to some of the things, uh, some of the experiences, um, and and that um, uh, we we cannot see things through one lens. We need to really understand the context, the nuance, the intersectional representation. Um, in in really trying to um, 
understand um, the experience and the difficulty that someone is, mm-hmm. is is going through. And so that's that's my feeling about this. And, you know, someone sort of said to me a couple of months ago, rang me up and sort of said, you know, um, this was their experience and they're really pissed off and they're feeling really angry and they're not now they're questioning themselves and and they're not sure and was it racism or not racism I don't want to blow it out of control and I, I don't want to make a big deal of it but I'm feeling guilty but I don't know I'm feeling uncomfortable and my a simple answer to that is if it feels icky if it feels that something's not quite right it probably isn't. It probably isn't. It's been an absolutely brilliant discussion and thank you so much, uh, Shamima Youssef, Shams, for joining us on the 80% Mental Podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, it's um, it's been my uh, a privilege for me to be on here, and and um, I hope it helps a lot of people out there. And and really, thanks for having myself, and and also a privilege to join Ali on here too. No, you're you're more than welcome. And your your consultancy, Empower to Perform, we will put a link to that uh, in the description for the episode. So if you want to get in touch with Shams, you can do that uh, via there. We'll put all your details in the episode description. Thank you very much to Ale Quartiroli for coming on our podcast, 80% Mental. Ale, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you. Thank you for having me, for the opportunity, the privilege to be here with you all and for, for thinking about this topic, which is very important in sport and in life. So thank you. Well, honestly, what an episode that was. That was absolutely fantastic. And I'm so grateful to our guests, Ale Quartiroli and Shamima Youssef, for joining us today and sharing their expertise and their insights and their thoughts on this subject. We've talked about so many different things in this episode on diversity and cultural awareness. I think it might actually be one of the most important episodes that we've done on this podcast so far. And I think if I could highlight one thing in particular that came from this conversation that I think is the most important thing for our listeners to take on board is the idea that we don't need to be defensive when it comes to talking about diversity and inclusion and equality and privilege. Sometimes these conversations are going to be uncomfortable. That's just the way it is. And as Ale mentioned, you know, I think that stems from a desire to not want to say the wrong thing or not want to look like we're a bad person in some way. But it's not about that. It's about noticing the differences in all of us and embracing those differences. And that's something that we should all be engaging in, whether we are athletes or coaches or sports psychologists or anybody working in sport or just members of the public. Diversity isn't something to be afraid of. Yes, it can be a challenge, but I think it's a challenge that we should be facing head on. I really, really hope that you have taken something from this episode today. Don't forget that you can listen to all of our other episodes on our website, www.80percentmental.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on what you've heard today. We'd really, really love to hear what you think about some of the things that we've talked about. So leave a comment at our website, or you can tweet us at EPM Podcast. 
If you have enjoyed it, please do spread the word, share on your social media. It's the easiest way for people to find us. So as I say, I hope you've enjoyed today and I will see you next time. Well, I won't see you because it's a podcast. Thank you.